Father, we look unto the hills and we ask the question, even as the psalmist did, from whence comes our help? And the response is, our help comes from the Lord. And we're so grateful that you are our Lord, our God, our helper, our stone of foundation, of strength, of help, of blessing. And even as we touch on that subject today, we pray that you will open our eyes to understand more fully who you are in our lives and the extent to which our dependence needs to be upon you. Lord, I thank you for each one here today, and I pray your special touch on each life. I ask for your blessing this morning throughout our Sunday school as the word is proclaimed from the cradle age all the way through the senior citizens. And we trust, Lord, that in every class, the junior high, the high school, college age, the various children's classes and other adult classes, that you'll be very present in every class. You'll grant strength and encouragement and wisdom. And Father, as the word is ministered in the service this morning, we pray for your special blessing too. Open our eyes that we may see. Give us ears to hear, hearts to accept your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Genesis chapter 49, I'd like for us again to read verses 20 through 22 through 26. Genesis 49, 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father, have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers, the mighty one of Jacob. As we kind of quickly in our minds review back through the life of Jacob, I think we're reminded of how God revealed himself to Jacob over and over again of at least eight encounters that Jacob had where he either visibly or audibly or both witnessed a direct encounter with God himself. And so he refers to him as the mighty one of Jacob. And then parenthetically, he gives us synonyms for the mighty one of Jacob there at the end of verse 24. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And I'd like for us to take a few moments this morning to look at the meaning of those synonyms because they're, they're there for our, obviously for our instruction, for our edification. It's poetic, of course, but in poetry we can have powerful truth, as I'm sure we are well aware of. We discover that portraying the Lord as shepherd is not isolated, certainly, to this passage. And it was very meaningful to Jacob and, and to his sons because they themselves were shepherds. 
And having been shepherds, they knew exactly what the concept of the Lord being their shepherd meant. And they knew the importance of the shepherd to the sheep. They knew that without a shepherd, sheep were lost, sheep were defenseless. They knew that without a shepherd, the sheep are, savage, are, are scattered and they are savaged by wild beasts. This morning we'll be looking at several passages of scripture related to the various topics. So I hope your fingers are warm. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, Isaiah 40, 9 through 11, this chapter begins with the phrase, Comfort, O comfort my people. And then down in verse 9, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd... He will tend to his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Notice the, the, the phrase in verse 10, with his arm ruling for him. And then in verse 11, in his arm he will gather the lambs. With this mighty ruling arm, God gathers his people. We have no reason as God's people to fear because the arm of the Lord never fails. It is strong. It is powerful. God, through many passages in Scripture, deals with this analogy of shepherdhood. And certainly he uses that uh, particular picture because of the fact that as a nation, the, the Hebrews were prominently involved in shepherding sheep. And there are four, uh, three points I, I would like for us to look at relative to this concept of God being our shepherd. First of all, we know from Scripture, particularly from the passage in John that we'll look at in a moment, that he alone is the true good shepherd. All others who come and claim to be shepherds are false shepherds. They're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And as you look around at the various religious groups that have formed throughout history and exist today, where you have false shepherds, where you have false gods, oh, they, they try to appear as the true shepherd. They try to appear as uh, more desirable even than the true shepherd. But from Scripture, we clearly understand that they are false shepherds. And in that oft-read passage in John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking, beginning at verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is no shepherd like that. Uh, the leaders and the gods of other religions, uh, they, they devour the sheep. <laughs> they, uh, they flee and, and leave the sheep to be destroyed. But only Jesus is always with his people. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. As the children of the Lord, we have his promise to be ever-present with us. Our promises sometimes don't last, but God's promises are everlasting. And God never fails on his promises. We're going to be looking at the 34th chapter of Ezekiel in all three of these uh, presentations relative to shepherdhood. So when you get there, maybe you'll want to put your, keep your finger in there because the 34th chapter of Ezekiel is, is an amazing chapter relative to the concept of sheep and shepherd. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16 first in Ezekiel chapter 34. And, and, and it's, to me, just really utterly amazing how explicit God is here in this passage. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams in all, and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be upon the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. And I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. I mean, it's quite obvious that uh, throughout this 34th chapter of Ezekiel, God is not talking about sheep. He's talking about his people, about us by extension. And uh, God in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, God is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd and the true shepherd of his people. And it's really important that we always keep in focus the fact that God is ever present and God is ever concerned about us. It's easy for us, I think, to feel that as we get involved in the affairs of our life that, that God is distant. Almost to have a deistic view of God, that he's off doing something else and he doesn't have time. You know, like the joke about, well, I don't remember the joke, but just the idea of, uh, you know, you, you pray to God, but you get a busy signal. No, there, there is no busy signal with God. Uh, he has an open line for everyone. And it's, I think, it's really important for us to remember this, because it's easy to forget, because if we were God, we'd probably say, forget you, you know. You've goofed it up enough times. I don't even listen to you anymore. But that's not his attitude. He is the good shepherd. And he's always seeking his sheep, even those that are scattered, even those that, those that are lost off on another hillside and have wandered away. But God works through 
I mean, I mean, he does this individually in our hearts, but God also works through a, uh, individuals on this planet, which he has chosen to be his under-shepherds, people who are to serve on his behalf to minister to the sheep. And what's important for us to remember is the under-shepherds, and of course the word pastor, pastor which we use for the leader of church, means shepherd. And uh, the pastors of the church, the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, the deaconesses of the church, the, these individuals have a sh under-shepherd ministry to the flock. And it's really important for us to remember that they must answer to God for how they do their task. Uh, unfortunately, I think today uh, it's easy for, in at least some church settings, for people who are in roles of ministry to kind of consider themselves as if they're cogs in some kind of a business. And, you know, if they don't do a good job, why then they'll be demoted or fired, but that they really don't have any deep responsibility. But being in a responsible position within the body of Christ, we're not just uh, responsible to the person who is over us. We're responsible to Almighty God for what we do and for how we carry out the ministry that we have been given. And so God chooses persons and he empowers persons and he gifts persons to serve as under shepherds. But each of those persons is answerable to God and he will judge and he will remove those who actually prey upon the sheep they're supposed to be shepherding. And of course we're all familiar with instances where that has, has happened. A good Now, keeping your finger in Ezekiel 34, if you can do it, there's a good example over here in, in 1 Samuel of what I'm referring to here. 1 Samuel chapter 2, you probably remember that before Samuel became priest and judge of Israel, there was one by the name of Eli or Eli, and uh, he had some sons. And his sons were radicals, to say the least. In verse 22, we read, now, now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. And then over in verse 34, And this will be a sign to you, which shall come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them shall die. And if you remember the circumstances. Israel went out to war and they weren't doing so well so they took the Ark of the Covenant with them out to war. And not only was, were they defeated but the Ark was captured and Phinehas and Hophni were slain in the same day. And when the news came back that Hophni and Phinehas were slain, that was hard on, on Eli, but when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken, do you remember what happened to him? Scripture says he fell off his bench, broke his neck, and died. 
for he was a big man. Uh, he died in the same day his sons died because he had not, he ha he had, he had not disciplined his sons. And, and we read, you know, it's not good what you're doing, my sons. What do you mean not good? <laughs> if his sons were actually violating the women who came to the, to the, to the tabernacle, they should, have been, they should have been stoned and removed. But God removed them. They were under shepherds who were preying on the sheep. Then back to 34th chapter of Ezekiel, reading at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself from the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. And my flock was scattered over the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I lives, live, declares the Lord God, surely my flock has become a prey. My flock has become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I shall demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding the sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I shall deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be food for them. We, of course, sometimes don't understand why God allows heresy to exist as long as it does, why God allows false shepherds to survive as long as they do. But uh, God is patient and God is merciful. But there is a point at which God draws the line. He says, thus far, no more. And down through time, Many, many, quote, shepherds have been removed, and often violently. You read through the history of the church, and you find over and over again, heretics have arisen. And uh, quite often those heretics have met a, violent, met a violent end. God will oversee his shepherds. It's for you and for me to pray for those who shepherd us, those who are spiritually responsible for us, it's for us to pray for them, that they will be good shepherds, good under-shepherds of the shepherd, and that they will walk in the way that God has ordained for them, because there are a lot of temptations in this world. You know, one, one of the greatest factors in human existence is the desire for power. Now, for many of us who, are, who, are, who have been Christians a very long time, maybe, and, and who are very happy with our situation, we may not quite grasp that. 
But when you look at the, the mighty rulers of history and, and uh, people who, who went to the greatest extents to attain power, you begin to understand the great, the, the, the magnetic power of power, <laughs> the great desire to have power for power's sake. And, and of course, we have it in the corporate ladder climbing of, of today. I mean, after all, whether you've got a job that pays $10,000 more than the job before is, is really probably not the main reason you want that higher level job, or not you, but a person does. It's because of the power, the authority that comes with that position. And, and that can impact the flock. And I'm, I'm certain that all of us have heard of, of churches where the pastor has become so power hungry that, that he becomes like a god over his congregation and he won't let anybody else come in. It's like the story that, uh, I don't know if I heard it or read it, about the pastor who was real upset one Sunday morning when coming onto the platform, the newly hired assistant pastor walked out of the office onto the platform before the senior pastor. And the senior pastor said, I always walk out first. You see, power has become a, a concern for an individual such as that. We need to pray for the under-shepherds that they will truly feed the flock. And then, thirdly, the sheep are also responsible. You know, the, the good shepherd, the under-shepherds, and now the sheep. The sheep are responsible for how they treat each other. We are responsible for how we treat each other within the body of Christ. God will judge the sheep on the basis of how the sheep treat one another. Again, keeping your finger in Ezekiel 34, if you'll turn back to Matthew 25, at the end of this, this long discourse that the Lord gave concerning his, his people, his, the sheep of his flock, he says in verse 44, Then they themselves will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, meaning the other sheep in the flock, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As we minister to each other, we minister to Christ, especially if we do it out of a heart of love and submission. If we truly love one another. Now, the scripture teaches us that we're to consider, each is to consider the other better than himself. That is really hard to do because all of us run into people that we have a hard time liking let alone reminding ourselves that they are better than we. And yet that's the attitude we're to have. I mean, they may not be by some kind of a, a measuring device. They may not be better than we are. But that's the attitude we're to have. You know, we think, oh, I don't know. I don't think I can have that attitude. <laughs> well, in our own flesh, we can't. But the scripture tells us that we're to have the mind in us that was in Christ, who came down from the halls of glory is God of gods to become a human being, to let people slap him and pull his beard and spit on him and crucify him. I mean, 
When we think of it in those terms, I think it's not so hard for us, really, to just let that other person have that position that we feel we're more qualified for, or you know, whatever the circumstances may be, if we remind ourselves of the fact that it's not such a big step for us, but it was a humongous step for Christ. I mean, an incomprehensible step for, for Christ. You know, we, we sing that song or we hear the song that he could have called 10,000 angels. And certainly if any of us had been in his place, we would have. <laughs> Zap him. And, you know, uh, I just love that passage in John where, where the, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus does just for a moment, just for a teeny little moment, lets a little bit of his glory show. And, and they all come running up to Jesus. He's in the garden and their swords and their torches. And they say, where is Jesus? And, and he says, here I am. And they all fall over backwards on their backsides, you know, tumbling over swords and, 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 and torches and everything. You just imagine that. All he did was say, here I am. You know, I'm Jesus. <laughs> but there was power in that word. There was glory. There was power there. Again, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 34 at verse 20, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and with shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Can you see the sheep kind of shoving each other aside at the water hole or for the best grass or butting each other with their horns? You know, that's, sheep will do that, I guess. But we're not to. We're not to push one another aside. We're not to butt at each other. We're to consider one another, another better than ourselves. And of course, when this passage says that the Lord will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, Ezekiel is not talking about, the Lord is not talking about the literal man David. Because Ezekiel lived in the 6th century. David lived in the 11th century, 500 years before. So he is talking about, of course, Messiah, the one who would come in the name of the Lord in the name of David. So the shepherd. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. The responsibility of the shepherd, the responsibility of the under-shepherds, and then the responsibility of the sheep is well spelled out for us in both Old and New Testament. And then the poetic synonym goes on and provides the concept of a stone in Genesis 49, verse 24. Jacob also portrayed the Lord as a stone, an eben, E-B-E-N. Now, the purpose of this analogy, and yes, we're on page 81 now, <laughs> as I hear the papers rattling. The purpose, I believe, of this analogy is to emphasize several characteristics of God. Why, why refer to God as a stone? Because we usually think of a stone as a cold, dumb thing sitting there, you know. And, uh, 
But I think the reference here is to emphasize some of the characteristics or attributes of God himself. One of those is his immutability, his changelessness. We sometimes speak of something as rock solid. You know, this investment is rock solid. There, what is this? One of the insurance companies, I think, uses the rock of Gibraltar as kind of the emblem of uh, the security that comes from, of course, investing in such a, an organization. What we sometimes hear or, or sing of the everlasting hills of Oklahoma. You know, these, these great hills sitting up here as, as a solid reminder of changelessness. Well, the mighty one of Jacob was trustworthy. He was rock solid because God is not capricious. God is not fickle. And one of, the, one of the most outstanding characteristics of virtually every other God ever presented to the human race is the capriciousness of that God. Even the Muhammads will admit that their God is different from the God of the Bible because the God of Muhammad is capable of evil. Because they say, well, if God can do all things, then that's got to also include evil. So their God can do evil as well as good. Well, I don't know about you, but that makes me very, that, that causes my trust in such a God to be greatly diminished. Because if he can do evil as well as good, then how do I know what he's going to do in the next situation? See, the God we believe in can only do good. And that gives us such a rock-solid foundation for our faith. He can only do good. To Moses, he appeared in the burning bush, and he said, you can trust in me, Moses, because I am that I am. The, the constant, ever-present, ever-existent, self-existent one. The one who is here by his own power, not because anyone else made him or that he was born at some time. <laughs> you read through the, the theogonies of the uh, gods of the Greeks and Romans, and it's really hilarious sometimes to read about how some of the gods were born. You know, somebody splits the head of a god open and another god pops out, you know, and, and somebody loses an arm and a god forms from that, or, you know, a, a, instead of a pearl out of oyster, you get Venus. I mean... It really is ridiculous when, when you think about it. And that's because human minds uh, produce these things. God cannot change. And really, why is it God cannot change? What would he change to? <laughs> because God is all and in all. Therefore, to what could he change? It's not possible for God to change. He has to be, by definition, immutable. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply you. Thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, meaning Abraham. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even 
more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When God promised, he simply promised by his own divine power. Because what else could he promise by? There is nothing higher. There is nothing more powerful than God himself. And this, this immutability is, to me, such a comforting thing. To know that the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden is the God with whom I can walk in my garden. The God who spoke to them is the God who, who, who speaks to me. He is no different. There are those who come along and try to teach us that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. And that the God presented by Moses and the God presented by Paul are worlds apart. But such people have no comprehension of the real meaning of the writings of Moses and the writings of Paul. Because I find that they dovetail perfectly that the truths that Paul presents are not new truths. There are many who come along who try to say, well, you know, Jesus preached one faith, but Paul preached another. And Paul is the inventor of Christianity as we know it, not Jesus, they say. But that's a total misunderstanding of Jesus and a misunderstanding of Paul. Because Jesus was the one whom Paul preached. And, and through Revelation, Paul further explained the meaning of Christ in us, the hope of glory. But it's the same gospel that Moses preached. And I hope through our study of Genesis, we've, we've seen how this has been true. And we've seen how New Testament grows right out of the teachings of the Old Testament. You know, the mercy and the grace and the salvation, and the redemption, all these major truths that, that come out of the New Testament are all foundation. Their, their foundations are in the Old Testament, even in Genesis. I trust we have seen this. And the, the passage in James, brief but, but so beautiful, James 1.17, Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's a statement of immutability. God changes not. And Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ it is said, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is immutable also. It's really hard for us who are bound within the framework of time to comprehend how God can function in an unchangeable way. How Jesus could be the same yesterday, today, and forever because we tend to compartmentalize Jesus and say, well, there was Jesus before he came to earth, then there was Jesus on the earth, and now there's Jesus after the resurrection. But he's the same. <laughs> he's unchanging. His attributes have in no way been limited or, 
are, are diminished by having become a man, having become resurrected. And even if we port, you know, are to see him, as the scripture seems to indicate, in a physical body throughout eternity, that has not diminished his omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience. For us who are limited to this little body, we, we have a real hard time with that maybe. Because none of us is omnipotent, nor are we omniscient, and thank God we're not omnipresent. But, but to understand how Jesus can be our elder brother, how he can be, appear in a human form and yet be all these things, don't try to figure it out. You'll blow your circuits. But one day we will know even as we are known and we will understand how Jesus can be immutable and yet have become a man. A second characteristic that derives out of this stone concept is that of his strength. We think of a stone as strong, as standing firm. Remembering that God is the one who created the galaxies, he created the universe. And of course today, astronomers have revealed to us, or at least conjured up in their minds, a universe that is incredible in terms of its gigantic size. You know, it used to be thought that, wow, our Milky Way galaxy is a huge, huge thing, and, and it is. But compared to the totality of the universe, it's just a drop in the bucket. You know, we're our galaxy, the Milky Way, and, and then we move around in a galactic group, and then there are super galactic groups where there are many galactic groups in this area of space, and then there are huge areas of space with many galactic groups. I think, oh. Now, either that's the wild ruminations of astronomers, or God is vast. It may be both, for all I know. But the God who created all that and created the Earth itself possesses thus all the power and strength in the universe. You know, the Lord says, my arm is not shortened that it cannot save, which is kind of an anthropomorphic way of, of indicating that God can help us. But when you think of the vastness of his strength, how could we doubt his ability to help us? God said to Job, or asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What do you answer to a question like that? <laughs> I was nowhere, Lord. <laughs> And speaking of Christ, Paul tells us in Colossians that by him all things were created and in him all things hold together. And many refer to that as, as kind of a law of, of creation, a law of universal power. By the power of Jesus, the whole universe holds together. And the very atoms that comprise our body are held together by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, will the scientists ever be able to explain? I don't know if you ever thought about this, but uh, you, you know, of course, that the north and the south end of a magnet attract each other, but two north ends or two south ends repel each other. And yet the nucleus of an atom is made up of a bunch of protons, all which have a positive force, and yet they're all bound together there in this close proximity. The natural tendency of positive forces is to repel each other and a positive negative to attract. And yet they're all, all these positive forces are jammed together in the, in the nucleus 
uh, of an atom. How, how is that? How, how can this be? You know, it, well, it's, it's inexplainable. And I don't think science will ever come to some of these answers because it's in the power of Christ that this is a reality. God's strength is focused on delivering his people. And if God chooses to deliver, who can prevent that deliverance? Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning at verse 26. Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, which is a synonym for Israel, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you, and he said, Destroy! So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places, their, their places of worship. You shall tread them down, because who is like the God of Jeshurun? What God is there that can stand before the God of Israel, the mighty God of Jacob? Well, certainly Joseph, as he heard this, didn't really know, but he knew that the gods of Egypt paled in in. in comparison to the God of Israel. But as you read through the passages of the Old Testament, and as God comes face to face with Dagon, or Moloch, or Chemosh, or Baal, or Ashtaroth, all of these gods are destroyed as if they were nothing before the mighty arm of the God of Jacob. And over and over again in the Old Testament, there are displays of his might and of his power. And how the gods of these other nations were, were shattered as they tried to stand against the immutable, all-powerful God of the universe. And then, thirdly, God is our foundation. God is our solid rock, the foundation stone. On Christ the solid rock I stand, we sing. All other ground is sinking sand. That's not just pretty poetry, that's absolute truth based on Scripture. In Proverbs, we read that the righteous has an everlasting foundation. And both the Old and the New Testaments affirm our foundation in God. Let me just turn quickly to passage in the 28th chapter of Isaiah, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed or moved. And of course, the scripture in the New Testament tells us that that cornerstone is Christ, says the author of the Hebrews. We cannot be moved if we are based, if our building is built on the foundation of Christ in 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. We have that foundation in God and in Christ. And then, 
He is as a stone. He is our help. And of course, we, we sing that song, Here We Raise Our Ebenezer, based on the passage in 1 Samuel chapter 7, which is such a, a beautiful exhibit of the power of God as our stone of help. That's what Ezer means. Eben is stone, Ezer is help. Stone of help, rock of help. In 1 Samuel 7, 10, Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines, so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. How come? Because of their Ebenezer, their stone of help. The stone, of course, that Samuel raised up was simply an emblem, but it was an emblem of the fact that God was a rock, a stone of help. He's always there, ready to help. And his help is sure and unchanging. And then finally, we need to again realize that that rock of help, that stone, that Ebenezer, who is Yahweh, is also Jesus Christ. And Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he says, beginning in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ, the stone of help, the Ebenezer, who was with Israel through the wilderness was Christ, was Yahweh, Yahweh Christ, synonyms for the same one. Well, we didn't cover many verses today. We got through half of one verse. At that rate, if we were doing Genesis, we could be a very long time at it. <laughs> but the way it's looking right now, uh, we will probably finish Genesis towards the end of March. So that's the way it's looking at this point. But next week, We'll finish the account here concerning Joseph and uh, move on to the account concerning Benjamin.